0: Good morning. Well, I have good news for you today. If you've come in tired or discouraged uh, or depressed or down, uh, uh, the sermon today is a sermon of hope, and that's because we're in Ephesians 1 through 3, and more than once I've sort of outlined Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is about Uh, who we are in Christ. It's about God's great eternal plan. And then chapters 4 through 6 have more about uh, the insight for practical living, how God wants us to live. It has uh, uh, all kinds of information about the nitty-gritty details of how we do family life and interact with our government and live together in the church, what we do with our words, uh, all kinds of practical insight. And those of you who know me know that I'm so attracted to those chapters. I love talking. About that, but they do include a number of commands, a lot of exhortations. And if you're feeling tired this morning, don't worry, there's no commands for you to follow today. But there are promises and privileges we've received through Christ that are meant to cheer us on our heavenly journey. And perhaps the best way to uh, introduce this is would be to talk about the great wealth transfer that's uh, coming in America. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading an article on money.com, and uh, the the title that caught my eye was this, More Americans are Leaving Inheritances, and It's Not Just Wealthy People. Uh, There was a survey that was conducted uh, by a research firm that found that 60% of U.S. households said they intend to give, will receive, or have already received, inheritance compared with just 46 percent of households uh, that did the survey just seven years ago. Uh, This surge in Americans preparing to pass down or inherit uh, assets over the next several years is what economists are calling the great wealth transfer. It's a major shift in generational wealth that's expected to take place over the next 20 years. A report from the financial research company Carilli & Associates Uh, says that baby boomers and members of the silent generation will pass down an eye-popping $84 trillion through 2045. However, there is a problem with this transfer of wealth that's anticipated. In many cases, parents who've gone to great effort to set aside a bequest haven't thought through the actual transfer of money. And that can be a costly mistake because inheritances can be frittered away through mismanagement, they can be lost to estate taxes, Uh, they can be drained in court battles. Uh, You and I all, probably all of us adults have stories perhaps of uh, people who uh, anticipated receiving an inheritance and uh, in one way or another lost it. Uh, Anticipated inheritances in our world. Are actually more fragile than you might think. But today we're going to learn about an inheritance God has reserved for his adopted children that isn't fragile, it's guaranteed. Now, please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 1. Verse 7, we're in the middle of a section in Ephesians, verses uh, 7 through 12 of chapter 1, which is one unit of thought dedicated to the spiritual blessings we receive through faith in Christ. And there are three of them in this section. We've already looked at the first two. The first blessing we receive through Christ is redemption. Because Jesus came and lived a morally perfect life and then voluntarily died in our place, He purchased a forgiveness for our trespasses. The second blessing we receive through Christ is wisdom, and we looked at that last week. Paul uh, named this wisdom three things. He called it wisdom, insight, and a certain knowledge of God's secret will. Uh, The Greek word he used for wisdom uh, is the idea of uh, having answers to the big questions of life, how did human history begin? Where did we come from? Who made all this? Does history have a goal to which it's moving? Uh, what is the meaning and purpose of life? We're given answers to those questions that orient us to the world around us in Scripture. The Greek word Paul uses for insight has to do with uh, wrestling with the practical problems of daily living, and the Bible certainly gives us answers to those problems. And then the specific knowledge of God's secret will that Paul was referring to, that he highlights, is the knowledge that God the Father is administrating the ages of human history towards a future day when at the perfect time, at the, at the right time, Christ will come and reign on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. It is through Christ, then, that we receive redemption from our sins, and wisdom and insight. And then we come this morning to the third blessing we receive in Christ. Let's read about that together in Ephesians 1, 7 through 12. Uh, Paul is uh, speaking here. We're going to start with in Him. And if you back up into verse 6, the in Him is the beloved Son of the Father. So, the in Him here is Christ. In Him, in Christ, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we attempt now to study your word as an act of worship, please give us enlarged hearts to grasp something of the grandeur of the inheritance you've given us through your Son and help us to perceive its superiority to any earthly inheritance we've received or could receive. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, the first two blessings we receive through Christ are uh, redemption, uh, wisdom, and insight, and those primarily look to the past. Now, of course. Being freed from our sins and being given wisdom and insight have continuing benefit in the present, of course. But they're present realities that look back to the past. But the blessing we're going to look at this morning is future oriented. Uh, we have been given an inheritance in Christ, but we haven't received it yet. We haven't. Uh, it's not ours yet. And sadly, I think most of us—and I'll admit to this, myself included when we think about our spiritual inheritance, we don't begin to value it as we ought to. And that's kind of odd because I think many of us in here have read through the whole New Testament, and the New Testament, this isn't like the one place the New Testament talks about our inheritance. It's all over the place. It's a theme in many of the letters that the apostles wrote, and yet it's not something we typically think about or value as we should. At least I I confess I don't always. But here in verses 10 through 12, Paul is going to give us a quick lesson on the riches of the inheritance that awaits us through Christ. And as he does so, he identifies five important details about this inheritance that I want to show you this morning. The first detail, it's very brief, but it's a very important one that we should make sure we note, and that is this. Uh, In the present age, inheritances are received by being connected to someone, either by birth or adoption. So, by what connection, through what kinship are we granted this great eternal inheritance? End of verse 10, in Him, that is Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, the in Him there, as I've already said, it's not pointing back to God the Father, it's pointing back to God the Son. So, it is through the Son that we have obtained redemption, wisdom, and an eternal inheritance. He is our relative, if you will. He is the connection to this inheritance. But what is the source of this great eternal inheritance we receive? Where does it come from? Well, to begin to discover that, Look at the first phrase of verse 11, "'We have obtained an inheritance.'" Now, in the Greek text of the New Testament, that is all one word, that whole phrase, it's only one word. And that's because Greek is an inflected language, much like Spanish or French, and if you've ever studied an inflected language, you know that the form of verb takes tells you many things. It tells you whether uh, they're the author is communicating about uh, in the first, second, or third person. It tells you what kind of action takes place or when, past, present, and future, that action was taking place. And it also tells you whether the action was active or passive. And understanding whether obtained here is active or passive is crucial for us understanding this inheritance. And just as an English refresher, when we say that a verb is active, we mean that the subject of the sentence is performing the action. I hit the baseball. I, the subject of the sentence, Performed the action, hitting the baseball. But when we say the verb is passive, what we mean is that the subject of the sentence is receiving the action. I was hit by the baseball. Uh, Earlier this week, uh, I had mowed the lawn nice and low, it looked nice. And uh, we all went out, and the family, we played a game of baseball together, and the neighbor girl even came over, and we play with a wiffle ball, thank goodness. And uh, I was pitching, and Brooke hit a line drive, not at me, she hit it at my face, And it was only… And you know how this works. In wiffle ball, you got to stand pretty close to the batter, right? And so, it was only because of my cat-like reflexes that I was able to protect myself. The ball bounced. I grabbed it. Brooke got to first base before I could get there. She was laughing. She was turning red. I didn't think it was funny. And even though she was safe, she's standing on first. She's safe. I still tagged her with the baseball. So, i I didn't think it was quite as funny. I was hit passively. I received the action. I was hit by the baseball. Now, the reason that's important is because in the English text, when you look at this word obtained, it's not clear whether it's active or it could be either in English. Uh, But in Greek, it's passive. So, you could uh, maybe translate it this way. Uh, we have been assigned an inheritance. We were appointed this inheritance. The problem with that, though, is that that is kind of awkward English, right? The the English majors are not going to be uh, happy with that translation. It's a little bit awkward, but you get the idea. Uh, what we need to say then about this inheritance is this. The lot of receiving this inheritance didn't fall to us by chance, and it also didn't fall to us because we deserved it or earned it, it was given to us by God the Father. He is the source of this vast wealth, this inheritance, but He's also the one who chose to give it to us. Uh, He is the source. But how is this inheritance transferred to us? in America, we handle inheritances much like the Romans did. Uh, In the Roman world, in the ancient Roman world, the way inheritances work is that you had to have written up a will or a trust very similar to ours. Uh, They were public documents. Usually, there was more than one copy. They were guarded uh, by very technical, legal language. Latin had its own form of legalese, just like English. And in the Roman world, having that document was everything when it came to an inheritance. But the ancient Greeks and the ancient Hebrews, they approached inheritances differently. They approached it with more of what I would call the automatic approach. Um, the entire culture understood that the estate would be passed on if the husband died, then the wife, the widow, would live off the wealth. And if mom and dad died, then it would be split up equally among the children. And if you wanted to deviate from that plan, then you had to have the legal document. And one of the things that's instructive for us as you read the Old Testament and you read about the Hebrew way of doing inheritances is that uh, one of the important details about Hebrew inheritances is that the firstborn son automatically received a double portion. And so, if you had two sons, like in the parable of the lost sons… All right, let me digress for a moment. When I say the parable of the lost sons, I mean the parable of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son, wasteful, extravagant, shamefully asked his father for his inheritance before his father's has died. Um, I think we need a new name for it. First of all, Nobody knows what prodigal means anymore. That might have served us well in like the 1800s, but we got to update this language. But the, the other issue is this. There's two sons that are lost because the oldest son is lost even while staying on the farm because he doesn't share his father's heart and he doesn't love his younger brother. There's a way in which He's lost, even while looking very responsible on the outside and staying on the… And you see that when the Father pleads with Him, we had to celebrate. Your younger son was basically, for all we knew, He was dead to us, and now He's back and alive. He's been restored to us. And you you see that uh, rabbit trail. Anyway, so I like to refer to it as the parable of the lost sons. But as Jesus is telling this parable to the crowd… They understood, he didn't have to specify, you know, which son was going to get what in the inheritance. They all understood that in their culture, if there were two sons, the father would split the inheritance three ways, and the older son would receive a double portion, the younger son in this case would receive a third portion. Of the inheritance. And the reason I'm going to links to explain that is because when the New Testament talks about the inheritance God the Father intends to give uh, the restored humanity that belongs to Him, uh, the New Testament talks about Christ as the primary heir, the, the preeminent uh, son, the, the firstborn, if you will, in the idea of a Hebrew inheritance. And the New Testament is full of this idea. For instance, At the very beginning of Hebrews, we read this, God, after He had spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions, in many different ways, uh, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir, inheritor, of all things. Christ is the primary heir. Uh, During His earthly ministry, Jesus told a parable about a landowner who at great expense to himself built a vineyard, but then he went away to a foreign country and he leased the vineyard to vine dressers. When harvest came, he sent servants to receive some of the harvest. Uh, and in that story, and the and the vine dressers wickedly beat some of his servants, killed the others, and finally the father sent his son, thinking that they'd at least respect his son. And in that parable, God the Father is the landowner, the vineyard is the kingdom of God, and the son is the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody understood when the parable was told. Actually, the Pharisees who were offended really understood uh, that due to the law of inheritances, the son was the proper heir of the vineyard. There was this unbreakable connection in the Hebrew mind between sonship and an inheritance. And that doesn't just apply to Christ in the New Testament, it also applies to us by way of our adoption. Christ is the primary heir. Christ is the only Son of God by nature. He is the only legitimate Son by right, but we become fellow heirs with Christ by virtue of our adoption. Turn over to Romans 8. Uh, I promise this will be our only cross-reference for today. Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 14 I don't want to just claim that we are fellow heirs with Christ. I want you to see it for yourself from Scripture. Uh, Paul is in the middle of a paragraph explaining this. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, When I was in Israel, one of the professors there, Dr. Schlegel, he had a four-year-old daughter uh, named Rachel, and uh, Rachel was cute. She was a cute little four-year-old. I remember one day I had to babysit her for a couple hours, and we went around the Moshav looking at the turkeys and the different animals and all, and the next day, the very next morning, she came by in the morning. It was breakfast, and I had eaten my breakfast. She was coming in, and uh, some of the college girls I was friends with were there, and I said hi to Rachel. We had spent quality time the day before. I said hi to her, and she just completely ignored me and walked by, and the college girls thought that was the most hilarious thing. There was just a great introduction for Chris Krupp into how fickle young women can be. Uh, uh, but that day, that same day at breakfast, she was, uh, Rachel was running and uh, she skinned her knee and I, and you know she's a 4 year old so you feel terrible for her as an adult and i but i remember you know she's being raised in israel her parents are raising her to speak the language and she, she, you know, she's crying, and she says, Abba, you know, Abba, to her father, Dr. Schlegel, and goes running to him, and he gives her a big hug. It was worth going to Israel just for that. And this spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father, it's not just a term of endearment. It's not just like, oh, Daddy. It's a lot of times in Scripture, the idea is, Abba, help. Help, Abba, because we have such a a needy love, uh, and and it's a term of endearment that the Spirit helps us understand that we truly belong to the Father. And then look at verse uh, 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and, note this language, fellow heirs with Christ. We've become fellow heirs with Christ by virtue of our adoption into God's family. Uh, We've been connected to this inheritance through Christ. Uh, uh, God is the source of the inheritance, and it's through Christ. Even though He's the primary heir of this kingdom, we become fellow heirs through adoption. But what exactly are we inheriting? I keep talking about this great inheritance, but what precisely do we inherit? Well, Paul doesn't explain it here in Ephesians 1. He's just given a brief summary. Uh, you have to cross-reference to other portions of the New Testament to see what this inheritance is. And if you go through that exercise, you'll find that there are three things that we inherit. The first is salvation. We inherit rescue from God's just anger at our sins, and therefore, because we receive pardon, we also receive the benefit of eternal life. In Ephesians 3… Paul is going to explain it this way. He says that this new covenant that Christ has inaugurated in His blood, that by that Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises of in Christ, in Christ Jesus through, this is important, the gospel. So, through repenting of our rebellion against God and by relying on Christ and His sacrifice to pay the penalty for our rebellion, we inherit all the promises of the gospel, which means we inherit forgiveness of sins, we inherit uh, being declared righteous by God through our faith in Christ. The substance of what we inherit is salvation, but that's not all. According to the New Testament, we don't just inherit salvation, we also inherit an estate. We, We get an actual estate that is variously referred to as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of a future day when He's going to come and return in His glory. This is about His second coming. Um, And He's going to sit on a glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered to Him. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. And in that day, He says ahead of time, I'm going to say, come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Now, in context, that particular kingdom Christ is talking about at that time is His reign as king over the world in which He'll set up a thousand-year reign and He will reverse many of the effects of the curse of sin. But there are other passages that go even beyond that thousand-year kingdom to talk about an even greater kingdom, and one passage that does so is Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John is uh, speaking and using language of overcoming as synonymous with being a Christian. He overhears God say this, He who overcomes will inherit these things. What things? Well, in Revelation 21, the description is of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, uh, a a place where there is no longer any sin or unrighteousness. Um, There's no more rebellion against God, and also there's no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, because all those things have been done away with. The description is of one that goes uh, to an even greater kingdom and an eternal kingdom that's greater than the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's a description of the rewards of a renewed creation in eternity future. And so, what you inherit through your connection to Christ is living under the reign of King Jesus, now in the church, And that's a meager inheritance to start with. But then you go to reign with him in heaven, in the millennial kingdom, and then in the new heavens and new earth. That's the estate you inherit. But I'll confess that I just abused Revelation 21 because I focused in on the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem there. But let me do it justice by quoting all of Revelation 21 verse 7, because I think Revelation 21 verse 7 does as good a job of any verse as of summing up that whole chapter. Uh, God is speaking and He says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The most important part of our inheritance is that we inherit God Himself. We inherit restored relationship with Him, where we no longer have to fear His judgment, and one day we will dwell with Him face to face. Earlier in Revelation 21, uh, John says this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new." So, if you're in Christ this morning, Ephesians 1, coupled with Revelation 21, would teach this, you've been chosen by God to inherit God. He is your inheritance. You get to live with Him face to face in His visible presence, but in such a way that His holiness won't consume you because you have been perfected and made holy. And so, the substance of our inheritance is salvation, living in the kingdom of God, and relationship with God Himself. We've been promised an amazing inheritance. But we live in an uncertain world. As I was saying before, I think we all have stories of, uh, of another adult we know who expected uh, to receive an inheritance, and for some reason or other, it, it didn't happen. Uh, they, they lost it, uh, never to enjoy any of it. In this life, it's not uncommon for inheritances to be lost. Uh, maybe a parent controlling the, sta- the estate writes a son or daughter out of the will because of a falling out they've had. Or maybe a, a father has planned to give an inheritance, uh, but his own financial plans are thwarted. Maybe he made some bad financial decisions at the end, or or maybe he made wise financial decisions, but powers that were greater than his ability to contend with uh, destroyed the wealth he had stored up. Or maybe a son or daughter did something legitimate uh, to lose their inheritance. You think of how Esau forfeited his inheritance by selling his birthright, for some food. Those are just a few ways that inheritances can be lost. And I think, by way of his very language, Paul, in the remainder of this passage, actually addresses how our inheritance is uh, certain and how we won't lose it through any of these circumstances uh, or these uh, phenomena that I just talked about. Uh, first of all, God won't change his mind about our inheritance. Look again at verse 11. Also, We have been appointed an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Predestined. We know in context that this isn't just a purpose that God had for us after we came to Christ. This is His eternal purpose for us. We know that He works all things after the counsel of His will, and that no one can thwart His will. I think Paul couldn't have used stronger language to say that God has decided this. Uh, Verse 11 is connected all the way back to verse 4 where we learned previously that God chose sons and daughters that He would adopt in eternity past. This is an eternal plan that is according to His own purpose, and He doesn't change His mind. He never needs to change His mind functionally because He is perfect and makes perfect decisions and also because His character doesn't change and His emotions on the subject don't change. He's working all things after His own counsel regarding the inheritance He's planned for those who are redeemed. But that leads to another question. What about the possibility of the Father's well-intentioned plans being thwarted? Well, Paul addresses that problem at the end of verse 11. We've been appointed this inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Now, the Greek word that we translate as works here, I love it. It's an interesting word. It actually descends into English for us as the word energy, it's one of the easiest Greek vocabulary words for you to learn, energeo. It just—it looks like energy, but without the Y on the end. And what it communicates in Greek is the power and the raw power and the resources to accomplish what you've set out to accomplish. Uh, Paul is going to use this word later on in chapter 1, to speak of the power by which the Father raised the Son from the dead. So, in context, we could say it this way, the same energy God used to raise Jesus from the dead, He is using to give you an inheritance in the future. Um, this is one of the promises, uh, uh, this, this one who promised you this inheritance. He's unstoppable. He doesn't run out of energy to accomplish this work. No one can thwart what he's planned to do. And I find this very encouraging because just think about this. God never gets tired. Can you even imagine what that's like? I can't imagine it. He never sleeps. He never eats. He doesn't have to take a vacation to unwind. Uh, He has inexhaustible power to deliver on His promises to you. But what about the third way that I mentioned earlier that people can lose inheritances, right? Esau sold his own birthright. What if you or I were to do something foolish uh, uh, to give up our inheritance? I mean, that's honestly probably the biggest question we have coming to this text. Well, I think spiritually speaking, asking that question is actually an excellent question. I think it betrays an intellectual honesty about humanity. I think it uh, betrays personal humility. But if you're paying attention to what Paul has said earlier in this passage, it's actually a bad question because it's missing the point of what he said previously in this same sentence. You didn't do anything to earn being adopted or to gain this inheritance. You received it from God, who chose to give it to you before you were ever born or had done anything good or bad. You did nothing to gain it. You can't do anything to lose it. And I think that's actually part of the idea behind the word, uh, the, Paul's usage of the word predestined here in verse 11. Your destiny to receive this great inheritance was determined pre or beforehand by God. The decision was made according to His own counsel, His own design, uh, and it wasn't arbitrary in its purpose. It was the product of well-considered, all-wise counsel. That's actually what the Greek word for counsel here means. It's, it emphasizes deliberate, thoughtful, well-thought-out counsel, and it grew out of God's will and desire because of His love to bless you. So, then let me summarize what Scriptures say about the certainty of the inheritance we receive. In eternity past, God made the, did the decision to adopt us and to give us an inheritance utterly without any outside influences influencing Him or manipulating Him. And actually, actually we know that to be true functionally, because nothing had been created yet. There were no angels or demons to argue with him about this, right? He made this decision in eternity past without outside influences. No one suggested to God or gave him counsel about who the elect should be, and there was nothing that he foresaw in you or I that caused Him to adopt us. Our inheritance is guaranteed because it's part of God's eternal decision, and God doesn't lie, and He doesn't change His mind. He uses the inexhaustible resources of His energy to make it happen, and nothing can stand in His way. Now, if you don't like that explanation, if that doesn't make you feel certain, that's okay. Okay. Because, you know what, the New Testament, it goes on to give us a whole bunch of other arguments for why it's certain and how functionally it will be delivered to us and it won't be lost. And you know what, we're going to get into some of those next week when we look at what, how the Holy Spirit blesses us in salvation. So, if, if you feel uncomfortable with the word predestined, if you don't like my explanation, it's okay. We got other arguments coming for why your inheritance is certain our heavenly inheritance is guaranteed. And the fifth and final thing we need to say about it is that it does have a goal. What was the Father's goal and intention and motive in giving this inheritance to undeserving, unthankful human beings that He's reconciled to Himself? What's going on in His heart that He would do this? Well, we know from other Scriptures God does this because He's love. It's the Father's good pleasure to give us an inheritance because He loves us. What did Jesus say? Fear not, little flock, for the Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We know that the Father takes pleasure in giving this to His children because of His love. That goal is obvious from the rest of Scripture. But this text gives another goal explicitly that God has. He's working this inheritance out for us into verse 12 to the end that we who have already hoped in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. God gives us this inheritance then to show off the glory of how gracious He is to sinners. It's, this is God showing off. This is God being rich and liking to show everybody else how rich He is. He likes to show off His wealth to His children. He likes to show off how wise He is in crafting a plan that lets sinners into heaven while still maintaining His justice and fitting those sinners for heaven so that when He brings them into heaven, they don't ruin the place with their rebellion, right? God likes to show off how inexhaustible His energy is to deliver on what He's promised His children. It's God showing off. And so, maybe we could say it this way, Uh, Not only have we been given a great inheritance, that's sort of an underwhelming sermon title, that's my fault, Uh, we've been promised the greatest inheritance anyone could ever receive. And uh, maybe, if you're like me, Uh, You've never understood how important this inheritance is. Well, Paul teaches us that understanding it is very, very important for the Christian life because later on in this chapter, verse 18, he's basically going to share with the Ephesians, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Paul's prayer for the Christians is that we would have hope and joy in light of this inheritance that God has planned to give us. And this is really critical for us, I think, in America for this reason. Uh, Here in America, Christianity is not competing primarily with Islam or uh, Judaism, or the Eastern religions, uh, Hinduism, uh, New Age, Pantheism. That, that's not primarily who we're competing against. Who are we primarily competing against in America? Secular humanism, Marxism, and postmodernism, which are all by definition atheistic. And not only are they atheistic, they're materialistic in the sense that they believe that all all that exists is the material cosmos that you can observe. There is no spiritual realm. There are no angels, there's no demons, uh, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no resurrection of the dead, some to eternal glory, some to eternal punishment. There is no eternity future. And whatever is popular in the culture, uh, wherever you go in church history, tends to have an influence on the church. And how do those philosophies influence us in the church? Well, one of the ways they influence us is by what they do with time. All of those philosophies lop off eternity future. And if there is no eternity, then what's the name of the game? The name of the game is to get as much pleasure and power and glory for yourself as you can in the here and now. But as Christians, we believe that is a shockingly short-sighted way of viewing our lives, right? You have an eternal, never-dying, ever-living, eternally conscious soul that will outlive the body that you live in right now, and by God's grace, you're going to be given a resurrection body that's uh, immortal and imperishable and incorruptible, Uh, but it's important to understand uh, that we need to have an eternal perspective. Um, And that means not focusing all of our limited energy and resources only on building up treasures on earth, treasures on earth which are only in the long run going to slip through our fingers. Uh, This is important for us to understand also, not only to encourage us to have an eternal perspective and to have hope and to invest in the right things, it's also an important apologetic tool for us because you guys know this with evangelism, one of the things that's hard for people to argue with, or two of them, is love and joy. When people know that you love them, that's hard to argue with but also when a Christian has genuine joy, even in the middle of difficult circumstances, that's hard to argue with as well. Let me illustrate it. Imagine for a moment that you received… Uh, oh, this is going f- to be a fun fiction. Imagine that this week you receive a letter from a prestigious New York law firm, and in this letter they inform you that uh, they have discovered through extensive genealogical research that you are the last living, long-lost relative of one of the wealthiest people in the nation, and this wealthy person just died, and it's going to take six months for the estate uh, to be settled, but when it finally does is settled, you're going to receive that person's personal wealth and their business empire. Now, my question for you is, what effect would that have on your life for the next six months? Would it be relevant to you at all. I think you would be a fool if it didn't affect your finances and if it didn't touch your emotions, right? Imagine you were living under some financial stress. What would it do? Well, it wouldn't fix your current cash flow problems this month, but it would sure take the edge off because you knew that the end was in sight. You could see the light at the end of the tunnel for your financial problems and not just for your current financial problems, permanently for life, your financial problems were going to go away. Well, I think our eternal inheritance does something similar. It takes the edge off. It teaches us not to put all all our hope for happiness in this life, which, to be honest, was always going to be an exercise in frustration. You know this. If you try to put all your hope for happiness in this world, it's always going to be an exercise in frustration because we live in a fallen world world. And so, what our inheritance does is it helps us bear up under difficulty because we know that better days are coming. We have the greatest inheritance ever coming our way. Paul explains the thought this way in 2 Corinthians 4, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying… How do you feel about that? Our outer man's decaying. I mean, I don't… I don't like looking at pictures of myself or looking in the mirror now that I'm aging, but like, decaying, Paul? Like, this is just insulting. Uh, Anyway, uh, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all, keyword, far beyond all, comparison. So, let's clarify here. Paul is not trivializing our griefs and our sufferings. He's not saying our sufferings are little things. What he's saying is that in relation to the glory and the joy that we'll experience in the future, the intensity of our griefs and our sufferings can't be compared to the intensity Of that future joy. That's the comparison. Uh, The joy of the inheritance we'll receive will far outweigh the sufferings and griefs we're facing now. And that's an encouraging, hope-giving thought that is meant to cheer us on our heavenly journey. It's meant to give us comfort and hope as we face all the difficulties and griefs and dramas and complications of living the Christian life uh, this week. Let's pray.